Thanks for tuning in to the World XP Podcast. If you're enjoying the content, please drop us up, drop a like, and let us know your thoughts below in the comments. Also, please consider supporting our podcast via the link below. It really helps us out. Yule, welcome to the World XP Podcast. How are you, man? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you. Thank you for, for having me. Of course. So um, let's start with who you are and what you do. And then, like we were talking beforehand, um, I've started off every podcast, uh, maybe this for the last couple of months with a question from the previous guest. Okay. Uh, and so I think your introduction will maybe help inform the listeners on why you answer it the way you do. I Obviously, I know what the question is. You don't. But I okay. have a feeling I know maybe part of what your answer is going to be. So let's okay. uh, st- start off with an intro and then we'll go from there. So what I do today is I today I'm a franchise consultant and I and I and like you I host a podcast called closethedeal.com podcast. We have special episodes called Your First Franchise on franchise and so I'm typically interviewing franchisors and entrepreneurs. So I'm speaking to both audiences and there's overlap in in leadership and mindset marketing promotions everything doing everything dealing with business 100 percent. so the question is how do you handle your lows the low days oh gosh lows low days low points low lows generally everybody gets them right it happens with everyone and it's all about mindset and for me personally we're going to talk about Katrina in a little while before Katrina, I came back to my faith. Thank goodness. Because that gave me a foundation to turn to regarding my faith, to lean on that, 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 that's a big part for me. Um, And then there's also with faith, you still have to work at it (laughs) as the human element. And what that means is every morning I wake up, I have, I, I start with my faith. I'm grateful for what today is. I'm even grateful for the lows because without the lows, you'd never have the highs. Okay. So, and, and what causes the lows is something went wrong. So those challenges in life, it's how you respond to them. They're either a blessing or they're a curse. So that's how I deal with it. I look at, I know the low is going to suck. I accept it. The reality is going to be what it is. Katrina taught us a lot on how to deal with that. And it takes time sometimes to get through those, but you ought to know, to know you're always going to come out on the other side for the better, typically. So that's, that's important to know that that can happen. hundred percent. That's a great answer. Uh, for those listening, the reason why Katrina has mentioned is because um, you was from New Orleans and he was there obviously when, when Katrina happened, when Katrina happened and, we had been chatting for those listening. We had been chatting, I don't know, a month ago, something like that, a few weeks mm-hmm. ago. That's right. And in your previous uh, line of work, one of the the industry, the seafood industry, was hit very heavily by mm-hmm. Katrina. And one of the things that we were chatting, and I was like, "Stop saving for the podcast because I want to know because it's interesting." But mm-hmm. you were able to kind of help pull an entire industry out of a natural disaster. And that obviously, at least to me, is very impressive. One, not only from the organizational side of being able to keep all these people in organizations, right? Everybody's got different ideas and of of how to fix problems and maybe more problems are being created than are being solved. So then you got the, the motivation from the human side, like you mentioned uh, before, 
Like, how do we get these people to, if they're going to stay, to continue to work for and, and help us rebuild rather than just leave, go somewhere else, which selfishly, I wouldn't blame anybody for moving at that point, to be honest. Sure. Um, and so you were able to kind of keep all these things organized and then be sort of a fulcrum for, for that. So the amount of pressure and stress that that must cause, or I would think maybe you didn't feel it that way, but just imagining myself being in a situation where it's like that is like, walk us through the situation and kind of, so obviously Katrina hits and then what's next. So like, you know, things are bad, right? The city's in ruins and then like, what's the next steps? Like how, how does that go? It's <laughs> for you. What is, when it's happening in real time, it's, it's surreal. Um, so yes, I was head of the seafood. I was head of the Louisiana seafood promotion and marketing board during that time. And I tell people what happened to the city of New Orleans was brutal because that was a flood event. The, the levee wall broke in the, in the city, the water came up slowly and went back down slowly. So that was truly a flood event that decimated the entire city. I mean, a million people were pushed out of the city. Um, of the whole metro area. It was insane. Regarding our fishing communities, it was it was complete insanity what happened to them. They were they were if you look at one of our fishing communities, if you look at the the bottom of the state looking at a map, you see what they call the boot, the very tip of it. Well there's a levee system that that's a parallels on both sides of the road that goes all the way down to that tip. And so you can see a levee on either side of you as you're driving down. Well, all the homes inside that levee, when the wall, when the wall of water hit those homes, this is not what happened to New Orleans. Again, the water went up slowly and came back down slowly. They got hit with a 25-foot wall of water. The water went over the levee into the fishing communities and turned everything inside out. And nothing could leave because there was a levee. So it was like a washing machine effect. Everything, the houses, everything was 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 completely turned around. So that was the beginning. Uh, knowing the devastation was just massive. Um, watching it, I evacuated like everybody else. I went to a small town right outside of Baton Rouge called Geismer. My cousin lived there. He fortunately never lost power, so I was able to watch the news. And it was hard to even, I mean, I'm only, what, an hour away from here, New Orleans, and I'm sitting there watching the news, and I'm like, this, I have no idea what happened in my home. Nobody knows. It's, just, it's you wondering, right? And I'll, I'll share the moment I came back into the city. Um, I knew my dad's home was okay because I was able to watch TV on the Tuesday. The Mondays, Sunday, August 29th um, hits, August 30th, all the news. I'm watching the news. I'm watching a helicopter fly over what they call the, the Southern Yacht Club. And the Southern Yacht Club was on fire. It was burning up. And a helicopter just hovered over that building. Then, a hover, then that helicopter flew around parts of the city and went to a major road and went straight down this major road, took a right, then took a left on a street, was happens to be my parents' house street. And I could tell their 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 house had not flooded. The whole city was, and the whole city wasn't flooded yet. That was immediate aftermath of Katrina. So the other portion of the city outside of Orleans 
truly was flooded from the hurricane. So it was just it was just massive chaos. How to describe it? It's it's near impossible. And and so you know, everybody has a Katrina story that lived here. Everyone. Um, I helped my so when my dad and I came back into the city, the the minute they let us come in, we came back into the city. And I won't ever, I will never forget that day as long as I live. We drove into the city. Uh, we went first to his house. It was fine, but there was no cars on the road. There was nobody. It was like ap apocalyptic. There was no one around. We go into his house. I said, Dad, I said, this is the first time I wish I had a gun because anything could have happened. We had no way of defending ourselves. All we heard were helicopters, the military helicopters, because they were starting to. They, that's at about the time when they were they were still doing rescues, mm -hmm. and, they, and they were doing and they were sandbag and all those things that were happening. So there's just so many. I mean, my mind just goes so many different directions when you ask that question. But I'll never forget th that moment, and then there's another moment I won't forget. That the 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 home I grew up in, my dad still had it. It's, we kept it in the family, and it was in Lakeview. It was in the flood zone of the the flood wall where it broke. And my dad refused to see that that had actually happened. He just did not believe it happened. And I'll never forget this as long as I live. We we go down, we park at the end of Veterans Boulevard, which goes into Orleans Parish from Jefferson Parish into Orleans Parish. Where the, the that's the levee wall that busted. And it's a little bitty bridge. You can't even see that when you're driving it, you don't even notice that there's an incline. So we walk up that wall. My dad I walk up the the foot of the bridge, and my dad does not believe. The city flooded because he just could not wrap his head around that. The minute our eye line could see over the area of Lakeview, the name Lakeview became very relevant all of a sudden because it was the lake. <laughs> lake Puncher Train filled up Lakeview. The house I grew up in it had eight feet of water water in it. And the part that I won't forget is not my shock of seeing it because I was watching it on the news. My dad had evacuated to a place where he did not have TV, so he never saw it. All he heard about it, and I kept trying to explain to him, "It's it's it's bad." My dad was in shock and just dumbfounded watching what he saw firsthand because he had not seen it on the news because he did not have TV coverage where he was. They did not have power, and there was a young couple that got out the car behind us. And they were about four cars parked behind us. So they were about a minute behind us coming walking up. All of a sudden, I heard this young lady screaming. She the 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 heart line of sight caught her very neighborhood as well. And she passed out. So that was the beginning. That was just the beginning. And I hadn't even thought about the seafood industry yet. Because <laughs> I was just like, what happened to my home? What happened to my family's home? My girlfriend's home? What happened to everybody's homes? Um, the whole city was destroyed. I mean, it was absolutely chaos. If it wasn't for the people who volunteered to come in, the, the volumes of people, thousands of people, uh, we would never have come back. It was the generosity of so many people that, that came to our city to help. Regarding the fishing communities. Well, the, real quick, yeah. that's... Yeah, I'll go as deep as you want. Obviously... What is even so I had thought this in the back of my head, but the to go on what I said before is is like you just described, you have your own stuff going on. Yeah. And still so 
anyways, keep yeah. So you have your own stuff going on, and then you and then you do this crazy thing of helping the seafood industry. Anyways, so I just wanted to, to point that out as like the um the bandwidth, mental bandwidth. Say okay, I need to fix my because it doesn't take. It's not just you fix your house and then you can go deal with the other thing. It's like time and time and and people are volunteering and you got to go home and like there's no place of um peace uh, you know when people say oh i want to come home from work and just oof, relax or whatever like that doesn't exist at for those listening for you that doesn't exist at this point so like how are you functioning at at such a level i guess without is it just a is it just a sense of we have to get this done and nothing there's nothing else that matters at this moment like what you what can't was the think switch in your brain because prior to katrina i from when we were talking, I would imagine that you had some sort of um, like off switch. Like you, okay, we relax, we go have fun with our friends and yada, yada. And then when Katrina happens, that all of a sudden doesn't exist anymore. It doesn't exist. And it, it still has to some degree, it still hasn't turned off. And I'll tell you why. Um, Let me, let me qualify something real quick. Sure. We went to my dad's house. We went to see where the, the levee broke, where the water had flooded my childhood home. Mm -hmm. And then we went to my house and my house was in Metairie, which is on the Jefferson side of the, on the good side of the flood. And even Jefferson Parish had two, three feet of water everywhere. For whatever reason, my street was just a tad bit higher and the water line was up to the door sill of my house. I did not have water going to my home. Literally, I had a grass line sitting on top of the door line. When I opened, when I put my shoulder into the door, because I didn't get back into my house, it wasn't for a few weeks, right? So when I put my shoulder into the door to get it open, I was expecting to see the wood floors like a wave and they were straight. So my house did not flood. That is the, is was a mental weight I did not personally have. Mm -hmm. uh, but I still didn't get back to my home until... I was not able to come back to my home, I think, until late October, early November, because there was no power. So it's like a month and a half after? Well, August 29th. So it was, I didn't have power. Half the city didn't have power. Well, the whole city of New Orleans didn't have power. Jefferson Parish, where I was, didn't get power for about two, bar, two, two months, two and a half months later. Um, so I never went back to my house for, you know, I stayed at my cousin's house in Baton Rouge, outside mm -hmm. of Baton Rouge. Um, so that that did give me the mental ability to wrap the head around. I didn't have to worry about restoring my home, but I did have to think, okay, how do I start helping the fisheries? Was that, that an immediate? Was that an immediate mental switch? Like you walked in the door and you're like, all right, I'm good. Now I go help the people that I've been working with. Well, before that, I knew that's what we'd be doing because I was helpless. Yeah. There was nothing I could do until I waited. I waited till I could get in the city to see the damage. I had no idea what had happened. But it was this third day after Katrina, the switch went off for me to help the fisheries. Cause I'm like, I can't do anything. What, what, what good am I? And I'll tell you that the process that went there, it was a Monday when I was sitting there watching the helicopter fly over the city with the, with the, the fire gone. That Tuesday, I go to wildlife and fisheries, which is the headquarters is in Baton Rouge. They're the ones with the airboats that loaned the airboats and went out with their own guys in the airboats to start the rescuing in the city of New Orleans. So I went there that afternoon 
and they're like, we're not taking any more civilians because they started people started shooting at the rescue people. Remember the helicopters and stuff. Yeah. So they wouldn't let me go. So I went back to my cousin's house and the next day I'm sitting there thinking, I got to be able to do something. I can't, you, you, it's a matter of survival when, you know, everything in your existence just disappeared. So I call a good buddy of mine. His name is Rich Shea. He is, my phone was actually working. I couldn't believe that. I was able to get in touch with him. He's in New York city. He had helped me do a lot of PR prior to Katrina. We did an event uh, that people would know about, uh, come to know about over a period of time, but he has an event everybody knows about. And he's a, he's a master PR guy. He's got two businesses. One business is PR. That's very serious business in New York. We're representing a lot of real estate properties. His other PR event, him and his brother, George, have the Nathan's hot dog eating contest. That's their, that's, that's their event. So he's a personal friend of mine. I've been working with him for years. I called him. I said, man, I don't know where to begin, but I know we're going to have to start telling our story. We got it. The way we're going to overcome this is to tell our story because we're going to need help from Washington, D.C. We're going to need help from people and we're just going to need help. Not even understand what that meant yet. Um, so he said, you'll I'll do He donated all of his time for the next year, year and a half to me for doing PR. It was unbelievable. Like, like I said, if it wasn't for people helping, there's no way. Um, man, this brings up stuff. <laughs> I can feel it in my chest right now. Um, so the next thing was I was able to start doing doing what we could to start getting our, our story straight. Then we go to then we then I was able to get my board together through text. Nobody's I was able to call out to him, but most of it was texting. Everybody was using Blackberries back then. So the Blackberries, <laughs> that's a word, that's a word, y'all. That's, that's like an antique. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. So we were using Blackberries to text. And um amongst and so I was able to find as many board members as I could. And we actually had a board meeting about two weeks after Katrina. No, no, about a week and a half after Katrina, we had a board meeting. And we said, we've got, you know, the the the, the general idea was we got to go to DC and get help. We were within DC, I think two, two and a half weeks after DC, after the we beat the oil and gas industry to DC. Wow. We, myself and my chairman. And uh, we were the first two people. And then a, a, another good friend of ours, Glenn, Glenn Armantrout from Acne Oyster House. All three of us were up in Washington, D.C. And we started the process of walking the hill. And all we had was our story, the white paper that Rich helped us with. And then we had some photos because they didn't have drones back then. We had photos, some aerial shots, the wildlife and fisheries photos, folks gave us. So we started the process immediately. Real quick, the board, uh, just so people listening, or the board of what? Okay, so yes, I'm sorry. I was the executive director of the Louisiana Seafood Promotion and Marketing Board. And my thought was, well, what good is the board? What, what, good it ha- what good is it to have a marketing board if you don't have a seafood industry? Because <laughs> the photos we saw of the fishing communities, this is before I laid my eyes on the fishing communities. Mm-hmm. Photos we saw the fishing communities, it was just leveled. There was nothing left. Yeah. And so 
this is the surreal part for us while we're in D.C. While we're in D.C., the last stop, we make all our congressional visits. The very last stop was with the department, was with NOAA, National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration. They're the ones that do all the forecasting for the weather and everything. And they also manage the fisheries. That's the two things that they do. And our, on our last stop, it's me, Mike, and, the, and one of the head administrators for NOAA sitting at the table. And as we're wrapping up our conversation, the door knock, guy door, guy on the door knocks. He's got a piece of paper in his hand. And he says, I got some news for you guys, and you're not going to like it. And it's before it hit the press. He's like, Hurricane Rita is turning into a Category 5, and it's heading for Louisiana. And we, we, we thought it was a we, – we almost thought was, he was joking because, like, there's no way. We're getting ready to get hit by another Category 5 hurricane. Sure enough, it took about another week and a half before Rita got to us. And Rita hit the western side of the state in Cameron Parish, and it was a Category 5 as well. And it between Katrina and Rita – the United States lost three of the largest fishing docks in the United States. Those fishing docks provide one third of all the seafood of the lower 48 states, the domestic seafood. <laughs> and they were gone off the face of the earth. And the fishing communities that supported them were gone. Nothing was left. So that began the process of rebuilding the seafood industry. Meanwhile, the city of New Orleans, my home, and everybody else's home was just destroyed. So you talk about the switch. The switch happened within a day or two once this immediate shock of just sitting there staring at CNN because it was CNN that had the 24-hour They all had 24-hour coverage. We're flipping between the channels. Once that switch went off, we... My wife will tell you the same thing because she had a nonprofit. She run, she still does to this day, ran, runs in this city. Her office building, I had to go help her get her stuff out of her office building once the city was, you know, but they allowed us to get back in the city. I won't forget that. I'll tell you that one piece of the story for context as well. Mm -hmm. Her apartment was destroyed um, where she lived. We, we weren't married then. Um I helped her get the computers out of her office building. She was on the ninth floor. She had like 10 computers and a server. And I'll never forget this. There was no power. We went and bought monitors lights to put on our heads so we could walk up and down the stairwells. And it's, it's August. No, I'm sorry. It's early September now. It's still hot as Hades. And we're in the stairwells carrying, carrying one computer down at a time because there were no laptops. It was just, so and then when we got to the server, I'll never forget the server is huge, and she's like, "You'll please whatever you do, don't drop the server. Everything's on that server." And I'm sweating. The server is slipping and sliding in my arms, going down the steps. I'm going one step at a time. It took me forever to go down nine flights of stairs, one step at a time. Why this thing's, you know, her, her, everything they've worked on for decades is in this computer. So. Uh, that's just that just paints the picture for just my little sl slither of it and everybody, you know that 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 story can be told over and over. Meanwhile, I'm starting to figure out how do we put start putting the seafood industry together. So we walked the hill, started securing money from Congress. We we ultimately ended up securing around 180 million bucks 
for the Gulf Coast, 150 for Louisiana, 150 million for Louisiana. And that's just that was just scratching the surface to what was really needed. It's about we had about close to 700 million dollars worth of infrastructure damage. Mm-hmm. You know, and we had for context, we had 60. Listen to this number. All this stuff is coming flooding back to me right now. And, and I remember the numbers because I we told the story so much. We had 60,000 uh, recreational vessels, boats washed up on land, 60,000. We had 3,000 commercial vessels washed up on land. Those are the big, big fishing vessels washed mm-hmm. up on That's insane. <laughs> just, just, just picture doing that one task. Yeah, that's uh... much less rebuilding docks, rebuilding buildings, rebuilding. And, and, and when a fisherman lost something, they lost everything. They lost their boats, their cars, their homes, their fishing gear, their trucks, everything. They started from scratch. They had to restart from scratch. It was, it was brutal. So the mindset, going back to the original question you asked, if I did not have my faith to lean on, never would have got through that. And then you just you, you take it one day at a time and going back to the to the question of flipping a switch, because that just really triggers with me. The reason why is after about two years, not just me and my wife, because she's trying to rebuild her her organization. Everybody I know is trying to rebuild their business. And I'm working with we represented thousands of semi, of entrepreneurs from fishermen to working with restaurateurs to seafood docs to seafood distributors bait companies, uh, gear companies, you name it, they were part of our environment as board, as part of our board. So, and then we had to rebuild the entire industry. I'll add one more complexity, then I'll come back to flipping a switch. Because mm-hmm. I think that, that I want, don't let me forget to come back yeah. to the flipping switch. After, when they started to dewater the city of New Orleans, I don't know if you may not remember that, you may not even heard that term. They had a gigantic pipe. They literally had go over the over the wall, and they started draining the, the civil corps of engineers. They, they started draining the water out of the city. They called it dewatering the city. That was the technical term. They literally pumped the water back into Lake Pontchartrain. Well, when they were started doing that, a professor from Texas called our waters toxic soup. So. The fishermen that could still have a boat and go out and fishing, all of a sudden, the market that we had, what little fishermen, few fishermen could still go out and fish, and there were some people who didn't lose their boat. Their house might be gone, but they still had their, their boat, right? Still had a vessel to go out. The market dried up like that. because nobody. Why did, why did he, what was the cause of that, of that guy doing that? He called it toxic soup because all the water was draining from all the water sat for two weeks. Now think about everything that would come up in the water for two weeks. Oh, I'm sure it's gross, but like, but this guy in particular was was there a reason, or was he? He was a he was probably a biologist, a scientist of some sort, and he just made a comment off the cuff. It was I don't think he meant harm. I think it just made a comment and it's those two words together, toxic soup traveled. This is before social media mm-hmm. traveled like wildfire. And it was in the papers, every, it was in the newspapers and the news everywhere. 
So that set the stage for all of a sudden we had a, we had, I call that the crisis on top of the crisis. That's where rich really came and came and played an important role for us because we, because once we got a clean bill of health on the seafood and we got it within a month, because the, 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 what people don't realize a body of water, Lake Pontchartrain or the body of water of, 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 of the Gulf of Mexico is massive. So even if it was as bad as it was, Mother Nature will clean itself up remarkably fast. So we got a clean bill of health from multiple health agencies within a month. So we had an infrastructure problem and we had a PR crisis perception problem that seafood wasn't safe. So how do you build back an industry at small steps when people are afraid to even eat the seafood? So it's just all these layers of complexity that were just off the charts. So going back to the question, I keep coming back to that, the flipping of the switch. And it's it's very relevant. And it's in, in, in my wife and I had the conversation, I wasn't even thinking about this podcast. We had the conversation about a week ago. I, I literally said, we've got to go take some time off. You know, we've got to push the stuff off and just turn everything off. After two years of everybody going at it, I mean, everybody was collectively just going at it, just trying to rebuild everything. We all looked up and we're like, nothing changed. There was no real visible signs yet of change. And we were exhausted. Everybody was exhausted. I mean, you just really, really, you really couldn't see the change. There's still parts of the city that have not come back <laughs> all these years later. My office building was downtown. It reopened finally about five years ago. Wow. <laughs> okay. That's crazy. It's that's how long it took to it it took to get fully back. Now I'll give you one more crazy piece and 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 just to show you that well, you learn a lot going through that. You have to run toward the challenge. You have to. I mean, there's no you don't have an option. You either it's how again how you respond matters. Some people want to hang on to what was. There's no hanging on to what was when something like that happens. It's you have to look forward. That, that's, that's the only option, really. You cannot, I mean, you you want to bring some things back that were historic and all that kind of stuff. But as far as the way things are done, you got to do things differently. So that went on for five years. We had Katrina and Rita. Two years later, we had Gustav and Ike. I'm not even going into details of that, but they were devastating as well to our fisheries. They did something to our fisheries. Uh, they, they shut us down for a whole month, those two together, back to back. So the four years, we had four major hurricanes. And then, and then the, the shining light was in 2009. The New Orleans Saints won the bid to go to the Super Bowl. So all of a sudden, at the two-year mark, we couldn't see much change. At the four-year mark, I'm talking about the city of New Orleans because the fisheries was yeah. fighting back after the two hurricanes. The, the extra big host, you mean? Yeah. yeah. But the city of, city of New Orleans, we could feel the energy starting to feel the, come back. So all of a sudden, we're going to the Super Bowl, and Drew Brees is leading us to the Super Bowl. And the Super Bowl is in February 2010. And we win. The America, we, it was America's team, and we won. And that was the mental flip 
that we said, okay, not just the city, but the fisheries was back because we had our PR cleaned up. The infrastructure was not perfect, but it was functioning. And we were back. Then the, 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 the rug was ripped from underneath our feet. Uh, three months later, April 20th, 2010. The, the deep water horizon explodes on a Tuesday. What is the deep water horizon? You've heard, okay, you've heard of the BP oil spill? Yes. Deep water horizon was the rig that exploded. Oh, okay. And 11, yeah, 11 yeah. people tragically passed away. And when that exploded, I'm like, oh, what does that mean? I was at the gym on Friday. That's that happened on Tuesday. You remember, you don't forget this stuff. That happened on a Tuesday. That Friday, I'm at the gym late that day. I took that Friday off. So I was at the gym at like 10 o'clock in the morning. And I was watching, I was on the treadmill and I was watching the news on the TV screen and they show the rig sinking below the waterline. When that rig went below the waterline, I'm like, oh, that's not good. So that was on a Friday. That weekend was eerily quiet. Nothing, there was nothing, nobody, nobody knew what to do. Nobody, what, what, what does this mean? Monday morning, I call the governor's office and I call the secretary of wildlife and fisheries. And they tell me to be quiet. And like, they were worried about the oil and gas industry. I'm worried about the fishermen. Yeah. So I bite my tongue. I tell the board, they're like, well, we'll just figure this out as one day at a time. That Wednesday, so this is the prior Tuesday, the explosion, that that following Wednesday, I get in my car to go to my office. And they're literally, is a radio station called WWL Radio. It's a powerhouse AM station. It, on a good night, it reaches 37 stations across the United States. A clear night. The I get in early early in the morning and I turn the radio on and the fishermen are going absolutely ballistic. They see a sheen of oil on top of the water in the Gulf of Mexico, as far as the eye can see. And they're going absolutely nuts. And that was the beginning of 87 days till they've capped that well. And by the time the 87th day came around, we had lost 98% of our market share globally for our markets that we rebuilt the first time. So we had to start the whole process all over again. But we knew once we got a clean bill of health again, took, it took us a while longer with this one. The difference between Katrina and this one was this. Katrina, there was no social media. MySpace was the social media and it was dying. Facebook was starting to pick up. And in 2010, there were people holding up, putting up, there were restaurants and festivals putting up signs all over the United States saying, we don't serve Louisiana seafood. We don't serve Gulf seafood. We had a PR crisis unlike anything we'd experienced. It made Katrina look small. So we had to start that whole process over again. And we did. We, 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 we built a coalition of people. We secured money. And we started rebuilding the industry all over again. So going through Katrina and Rita and BP, so many people got in the habit of just running, flipping the switch, mm -hmm. running, 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 running. 
you get addicted to the adrenaline of being in crisis mode. It, you really do. And even to this day, I, when there's a crisis, I want to jump on it. You know, it's just, it, it's, it's just, but it's hard to turn off. Even to this day, it's still hard to turn off. It's hard not to want to work because you just got in this survival mode. So, yeah, that's, well, isn't that's, that's, that's a, that's a snapshot of, of what we went through. Yeah. Well, even some, some level of the switch, when you made your career switch, it was, you felt like you had left the fisher, the fisheries in a good enough spot, yes. but it was like, I think from when, when we talked last time, from what I recall, it was like, I'm, I'm done. I can't do another one of these crises and I'm going to go look for something else to do. Um, so there was some level of that where even, yeah, the, it's the, the adrenaline is addicting, but it was still, it got to be too much, which anyone listening who is like, yeah, yes, obviously it's too much to go through all of that. And it's like, all right, I've, I've passed the baton. Yeah. I was ready to leave. I had started sending my resume out before Katrina. I mean, I'm sorry, before the BP hospital. I, right. I, I was I was in that job for 10 years. Mm-hmm. And when we turned out when we we turned around um Katrina in the in, in the Super Bowl, I was like, okay, maybe it's time to start looking for something else. And then that happened. I'm like, well, I guess I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> so I stayed for three more years. So and- walk so walk through the so right before the or before the BP oil spill, we were like, okay, I'm gonna look for something new. Um, just obviously you stayed through the oil spill, but mm-hmm. where are you at mentally with what you're trying to do? Because what it's not like you're gonna go to another fishery type thing. Like you were looking for a a career switch, like related, of course, as we'll get into, but. It's not like you're just applying for the same version of a different job somewhere else and you just want a new company. Like this is a total switch for you. So where are you sending your resume to? What's the thought process? What are some things that you're looking to try? And then obviously afterwards, the BP oil spill, you did end up switching. But what was the before the BP oil spill when you're like, all right, Super Bowl happens, Saints win the Super Bowl, um, City's got some energy back. You're like, okay, passing the torch off. Yeah. To like, what's where, what sort of things are you looking at, and then how did you end up doing what you're doing now? Okay, so before the BP spill happened, about a month or two months, I did two things. I started looking for jobs, and I also started a side hustle. I had a I had a website called closethedeal.com. I had owned that domain. I'm like, I need to put the domain to use. I built a job board site for sales and marketing jobs. And, uh, and I literally launched it two weeks prior to the BPO spill. <laughs> Thinking, I'll just do that on the side. Well, once the BPO spill happened, it was 100-hour weeks for practically three years. So, um, yeah, so I shut down the site about a month after the BPO spill. So I was looking for jobs as well. Um, the types of jobs I was looking for were related to trade association work in Louisiana and DC. Uh, Cause I, that's the world when, when you run a trade association, especially like a commodity market, whether it's seafood or cotton or lumber or whatever it is, it's the same principles that make it run. It's just a different, I, I my thing was commodities. 
and that that that's what you know I end up staying in the commodity business for two more trade associations after after I left. But that's that's what those are the types of jobs I was looking for because that's the space I was comfortable in running trade associations, and I liked it because when you run a trade association, you answer to a board, but you don't have a boss per se. So you have a lot of freedom, which is unusual when you still have a job. <laughs> I had a lot of freedom to call my own shots, but I still had a structure to within and I had a board to answer to. So. so you go through the other trade associations and you settle on this kind of franchise, franchise consulting um, thing. How did you end up there from, was it, were you... In, in the headspace of I need to get out of my comfort zone or did an opportunity come up that was too good to turn down or how did that work? Okay, so the last trade association I worked for, I worked for the two most dangerous industries in the United States on a per capita basis, commercial fishing and logging, the logging sector. And so I ended up going to North Carolina uh, for three years. My wife's mom was sick. My wife's from the Carolinas. I said, let me see if I can find some kind of work up here and get closer so you can spend some more time. Long story short, I did land a job working for a logging association uh, in North Carolina. It's a huge industry, massive industry, especially in North Carolina. It's like the second or third in production for uh, wood and lumber and, and logging. And uh, so I, that's the space I knew. Well, while I was there, I had the one, okay, I'll go back to something really invaluable. Sure. And BP. You do not get through Katrina and BP without, on your own, no matter how big the organization is. It doesn't matter. You have to, you, you have no option but to collaborate with others and other organizations and pull people together to make something, to overcome something like that. So, that's the space I knew, you know, I was comfortable doing that. So when I was at the logging association, by instinct, I reached out to create a partnership with a group called the U.S. Endowment for Forestries and Communities. And we were a tiny little association, but we aligned ourselves with the giant in the industry. And we ended up uh, ended up building a, 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 a tech platform with them to help the logging industry. And then I ended up becoming a consultant to them in five states along the East Coast. So I ended up with a contract. So I was able to step away from the association. My first step, finally finally cutting the umbilical cord, right, to go out on my own, was I finally uh, laid the groundwork with the endowment and got a contract with them, which lasted two, two and a half, almost two and a half years, I guess. Um, maybe right, right under two years. I had a contract with them. And as the contract was coming to a close six months prior, it got extended for an extra six months. I, I started looking at franchises for myself. And then the contract got extended. So I stayed with the job, stayed with the, I'm sorry, I should say, I stayed with my contract service in those five states, Florida to, to uh, Virginia. And while doing that, um, I kept thinking about the franchising thing. I was looking at, okay, that would be my off-ramp to go do that. And that's what a lot of people, 
my generation are doing right now. They go, they're using franchise in any way between thirties, forties and fifties to off ramp and get out of a career. So that was my option. So when the contract finally ended, I'm like, how did I, and I had had these, had started these conversations the summer prior with all the different, with, with two or three different consultants. I'm like, how did those guys get to do what they do? Cause they're not that many of them. And I went and found that and I pursued that. And that's how I ended up doing what I do today as a franchise consultant. So that's how I became a franchise consultant. And all those experiences in, in when you work, run trade associations, you're working with entrepreneurs. So all those experiences, uh, and, and, and in my case, re, in my case, working with associations, uh, with the seafood board, rebuilding an industry twice. And using marketing and promotion, so I understand how to rebuild, build a business, and rebuild a business. You know, because you you get you working side by side with these folks. Yeah. So it it was a good fit. It it just seemed natural, and that's how I ended up doing what I do today. Yeah. For those listening, franchising, I get and I'll uh, ask for some, I guess, further clarification from from you. But for those listening, franchising is like when you hear Shaq owns three hundred Wendy's or whatever. It's like. That is kind of that thing. But what Yule does is, or what you do is you help people who have not, well, maybe they have done it before, but people who have not done it before get their leg in the door and mm-hmm. find find a good fit for the the potential franchisor or maybe somebody who wants to sell um, or somebody who wants to buy and kind of makes that match happen. And, and you walk people through the steps of how it works as well, I think. Is that yeah. is that accurate? But if you want to clarify and expand on that, and for those and for those listening, like keep in mind if somebody wants to to do that, what would be some good first steps other other than to reach out to you? <laughs> okay. All right. So well, okay. So what is franchising, right? Uh, you, you you use Wendy's as an example. That's a good, great example. Most people think of food when they think of franchise, and they think and re- really most people think of like McDonald's, right? Because they're huge. The thirty four thousand locations around the globe. Um, so basically it's just a business model where the brand licenses out the intellectual property, the name, they license out a territory to work in and they give you a playbook that's been tested and proven to work to build a business. So it takes a lot of, uh, it takes a lot of hard work out of the process of trying to figure out how to start a business. Um, you know, if you're trying to start a business, you're starting at the goal line. If you're a football field, if you're getting a play, if you're in the um, going into the franchise business and they give you the playbook, you're starting in the red zone. You know, you're on the other side of the field. Yeah. So you're, you're up and running. You can be up and running in a business. If it's a home-based business, you can be up and running within 60 to 90 days. If it's a brick and mortar business, it might be six months to nine months. A brick and mortar meaning a retail space that has to be built out. So that's the typical. And then most people think they can't afford a, a franchise because they think of McDonald's and they're looking at that prime piece of property on the corner corner lot. And it is, it's expensive to get into a McDonald's. It's about half a million bucks liquid you have to have before they even consider you. And you're on a wait list because locations are where you're going to live. They can, they, you have to be willing to relocate to be with McDonald's. Great. You know, great. They know how to do it. I mean, there's no question about what they do. But it's expensive, and it's, a, it's it's several it's a million two million bucks. To, but by the time all said and done, whereas most of the franchises that I work with, I belong to a group called IFPG International uh, 
franchise professionals group, international franchise professionals group. And there's a few hundred of what I do. And we have about 635 plus franchisors at a plus or minus because they come and go in the system that we represent of brands that we represent. And there's about close to 4,000 brands in the United States. So we represent a big chunk of them. And so what I do, my role is, is somebody's interested in franchising. And most of the people I speak to are, it's new to them. The majority, there are some people who have had some experience with it, but the majority of people that are looking at it, that I, that I find myself talking to in their thirties and forties and their fifties have been in their career for a little while. Either they're, it's one of three things. Typically one, they're just ready to be their own boss. They've always wanted to do it. They've got some money saved up now and that's an exit ramp for them. Some people hate their job and they're looking for an escape to get out an escape hatch. That's another group. And then, then there's another group that just got laid off and they're like, Oh, what do I do now? You know? So they start looking at all the possibilities and that's how they find, and they'll find us. So that's, those are the people I generally end up helping. And they usually coming from uh, some, some form of career, and it, it, it's all walks of life, blue collar, white collar, every every walk of life of people considering. If they, and it, and and they once they realize the investment level is not McDonald's level of investment, the the majority of the ones we work with range anywhere between 75, 80 to about two hundred eighty thousand to get in, and that's still a lot of money. But if you've got savings or four hundred one k, you've got home equity, and you know property, uh, you have options, you have financial options that are available to you to leverage the funds that you do have, because you may not have to put down, but a 20 or 25, if you use an SBA loan, they're going to look for 20, 25% down. So just to use a round number, if it's a hundred thousand dollar business, you'd have to have at least 20, $25,000 to even start to, to consider this. Well, people in their careers, 10, 20 years, a lot of people have saved some some money there. Some people have it wrapped into their 401k where they have the money saved up. So it, it, it becomes within reach. And that's what people like, oh, I didn't realize like I, this was even an option for myself. So what should people, uh, well, I'll ask this. And then I'm, you had mentioned that you had um, a few things that you wanted to touch on uh, at some point. Um, but if somebody reaches out to you, what should they expect from the process to say, Hey, Mr. Smith, I want to I want to get a franchise um, in blank industry. And then you say, here are the options. And then like, how does it go? Like, what should like what should they expect? Well, I can tell you exactly how I work. Uh, first of all, I function like an executive recruiter. So my time is covered by the franchisor. So anybody who works with me, there's no cost to my time for them to be with me. So that's the first thing I tell people. Then I then I have a, a simple process I'll walk them through. Uh, the first call is just to see if we even like each other, <laughs> you know, do we, and to see if there's a mutual interest. And I'll share share what I'm getting ready to say here. Um, the next call, I'll go on a deeper dive with them. I'll provide them a free assessment. Uh, plat you've heard of DISC analysis or Myers-Briggs. Uh, we have a program. Uh, that I that I'm using that does the same thing specific for franchising, 
And I'll provide that for free to the clients. And it's shockingly accurate. And because not every franchise is a good match for a client. And you want to make smart decisions. So I believe in using the tools that are available. So I, I use that service to provide to my clients. And then I go through the categories with them. There's 300 industries that are franchises, but it's about 36 categories. So I'll walk them through the bulk of the categories based on their assessment. That gives me a snapshot of their interest, their vision, um, their financial position, because none of it happens without understanding their financial position. I need to know that. Once I have that information, then I can go to do my research for them. Could they go out and look at Google? They do. A lot of people do. It gets confusing quickly. Could they could they contact the franchiser directly? They could. Uh, then, they, but but if they don't have if they don't meet the requirements or if they don't have the territory, they're starting from scratch with one by one by one by one. Whereas I can do all that for them in a matter of days because of the relationships I have with the franchisors. And so I'm able to do that. So I'll go do the research for them. And about three or four days later, I'll come back with a, a seven to nine brands. I usually end up with about 30 or 40 when I start. But when based on that conversation, I start applying the filters based on the conversation. It's going to knock that down to seven to nine really good brands. And my last question I ask the franchisors, I go back to them is, is, is what's available in, your, in the market that I'm looking for? So whatever zip code you're in, what, what zip code are you in? I forget. What, what, I'm what, I'm near DC. I'm not gonna tell you. Put my zip okay. code on the internet. Come okay. on, man. All right. So whatever DC, whatever zip code you were in, I'll say okay. Let's look at your zip code near DC. The 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 mystery zip code and uh, <laughs> and and plus twenty miles a radius to give us to work in. And I'll do that. And by the time I finish doing that, I'm gonna have probably maybe I'll be in good shape if I got seven to show you, seven options to, for you to consider. If you like one of those kind, if you like one of those, uh, after we go, after we walk through the different brands, I'll make the presentation. Then I'll make the introduction to the franchisor for the for one or two of them, and then that process starts again with the franchisor. And, it, and so are you are you out uh, once you make the introduction? No, no, I stay with them throughout the entire process because when they get to the franchisor, they're going to get access to the fi financials. They get what they call the franchise or will be able to provide. I cannot talk about earned potent, earning incomes potential. I can talk about published numbers that they have published themselves. And it's in a, and it's, it's in what they call the financial financial disclosure document, FDD. That the, the, the franchise system is regulated by the Federal Trade Commission, FTC. And every franchise has to have an FDD. If you go out and buy a, a regular business, you got to take the broker's word and the owner's word. That's what they're telling you is is for real. With the when the franchise business, you're going to have a financial disclosure document which has the expenses broken down, what it costs to get in the business, and most of them provide item 19, which is going to have their revenue side as well. So you're going to have that information, which helps you in your decision making process. And people want to see this. There's 23 items in that FDD item. Two, there's two items that are, are about the expenses and about the revenue. That's what people want to get to. So when that, then when I introduce them to the franchisor, they will get that document. 
And they will be able to go through that to see, okay, this is this a good thing or a bad thing? And I always Makes tell sense. people, you got, you got to be interested. Look, when I was young, right before I started the trade association work, I got my one and only ulcer in my career. And the reason why I got an ulcer, I was 24 years old, right out of grad school. I thought I was doing great. I got a job, publishing firm, very cool office, top floor, lots of glass. Look, you know, just everybody was young, energetic. And within 14 months, I had an ulcer. It was the wrong job for me. And I learned my lesson then. I said, I will never do something I don't enjoy. I was very fortunate to end up doing what I did for so many years with the trade associations. I love what I did. And I think when I tell people when they're considering a franchise, I said, you have to have at least a genuine interest in it. Because if you don't have a genuine interest in it, how do you get up in the morning to want to do it? And if you want, if you're getting up in the morning and wanting to do what you do, it's a whole lot more fun. And you're probably going to be a whole lot better at it. So that's my approach to it. That's, it's, I'm a very, I take a very consultative approach, educational approach, just like this conversation that you and I are having right now. Yeah, that makes total sense. Did that touch on the things that you wanted to mention? Because I want to get to your podcast as well to, to, to talk yeah, about I, that. I'll, I'll mention, since we're talking, I'll mention, suppose I just mentioned two franchises just for fun, you know, sure. that two concepts. And since this is all about soccer, since we've talked about soccer, <laughs> uh, one of them is, is, a, is, a, is a youth soccer franchise. Um, they work with kids from, they call it from crib to, to, to college, from grade school all the way, prep, preparing them to play college uh, sports. And what they do, it's a, it's, a, it's a very small staff, maybe two or three people. It doesn't take many people to get into the business. It's going to run between seventy-two thousand and one hundred five thousand. So it's with with an, with a loan like an SBA. It's it's within reach of a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And this is what pe- this is what surprises people. The average unit volume amongst all their franchisers is this is their this is their FDD numbers one point four million. Now there's of course the expenses and stuff that comes out of that. That's their top line number, but that's that's pretty solid. Um, and you know in you, it's a it's a hot franchise because look at soccer. It's the number one sport with kids in the United States, and the World Cup is coming. You know, with the with the expansion league, with the major leagues, uh, soccer league. Mm-hmm. So that's just going to make it that much more interesting to people. So they're not competing with the existing uh, soccer leagues. They're complementing. They're providing clinics and camps and so forth. So it's a neat concept. And I got one other concept just for, just for fun. This yeah. one, this one's a little bit more, but it's just a fun concept. I show it to people; they either hate it or they love it. And it's donuts, you know. People think donuts, and they're like, "Oh, okay." And it's a mobile donut concept. It only takes two to three people to run it. Um, the the machines produce eleven hundred mini donuts an hour, which is crazy. Oof. Uh, you go to live events, think about events. You take the, the mobile trailer, mobile mm-hmm. to festivals, to sporting events, to games, to, to high school fairs, whatever. You name an event, the truck can be there. Okay. Well, the investment level is 185 to 253. Now, 
I love talking about food. A lot of a lot of consultants don't like talking about food. I like talking about food because I everybody's got to eat, and I especially like it when the margins are really good, and it's a fun business because they have a window inside on the side of the mobile vehicle where it's a portal and you can look in and watch them making the donuts. So that it's 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 made for to to, to market to kids so they could see it, and the gross. So the investment's 185 to 253. It's a little bit higher than the other one. But the revenue, and they, and they give an example. This is in their financial disclosure. This is one of the examples they have in their financial disclosure document. The revenue is $200,693 for a year. But the adjusted net is $169,799. With a that's a gross, that's a net margin of 84.6%. That's crazy. That's pretty good. Yeah, that's nuts. That's insane. And wait, wait a minute. They operated 102 days out of the year. So the average day, average day they were doing $1,968 in sales for $102 a year and, and with 84, what I say, 84% net margins. That's bananas. So, you work for a third of the year and you get 84% margin. That's nuts. Yes. Yeah, so, and, and, and we, again, we represent 635 different franchises. Um, and, and the concepts, the margins can vary anywhere from 15% to 30% normal margins. You yeah. know, there are concepts that do 30, 40%. And this one blows the doors off. The, the, um, the soccer ones, I believe is around 30%. That's, I believe that's the, uh, the number that they're looking at. So the numbers are really good. Um, but that's, that's part of the due diligence of somebody consider. And I always tell people when they're looking at a franchise that they need to do their due diligence. And yeah. I'm just, I'm part of the educational process. That's it. So when you say like, it only takes two or three people to run it, do you have people come in as partners that have signed kind of like partnership agreements or, or something like that? Or how, or is it generally just one person and then you hire a couple people? Yeah. So there's different models. You can be an owner operator where you're in there. So maybe it's you and one other person, right? Or if you want to be the manager of the manager, you can hire somebody to run it. Okay. And that's why, that's why the number, the range is a little higher because you're going to need some money for cash flow to pay the manager starting out. Mm -hmm. That's what, that's what drives the cost up a little bit more. So that's, so yeah. So you would be able to hire somebody to run it and train that person. And then they would, they would manage one person or two people. Mm, fair enough. But that's specifically for the donors. Same thing with the soccer. That's also, yeah. that's also, they call that semi-passive. And they, they tell you it's 15 to 20 hours a week for semi-passive. So that's how people can exit their jobs doing this on the side. Yeah. I always tell people though, you know, yeah, it's 15, 20 hours. It might be a little bit more because you think you're starting up a business, but you you will get to that point, you know? So you can definitely yeah. have semi-passive. No, it takes, takes lots of time for sure. Um, okay. Let's, uh, let's, I'm, Let's get to the the podcast side of, of things yeah. for you as well. Um, yeah. For those listening who are interested in any sort of these opportunities, feel free to message me and I can I can shoot you a text or however um however I don't know we'll we'll figure it out in some way shape or form. But um, point being, if you're interested, let me know we can we can help you out. Um, but you've also started a podcast re recently ish recently ish or has it been going for a while? Well, when I was with the Wood Trade Association, yeah. I mean the, the logging association, mm -hmm. 
said, you know, I came back to the domain. I shut down after the BP oil spill, closed the deal. I'm like, I should have been doing something like this years, for years and years and years. But I had something, I was doing something I really enjoyed. I was just fortunate enough to buy the domain. So I bought closethedeal.com many, many years ago. I said, you know, I learned the value of PR. I learned the value of media. I love podcasts myself. I love what you do. I, I enjoy being on a podcast myself. So I did it as a test to see if I like it. Um, so I put, I did a, I did nine episodes under a different name called Absolutely Mindset because that's, we talked that the whole process of whether you're getting through a crisis, playing a sport, running a business, it's all mindset. Mm -hmm. Every bit of it is. So the first podcast was called Absolutely Mindset. I did that as a pilot to see if I like it. And, I, and I'm like, oh, I love it. <laughs> so now I changed it to use the domain, closethedeal.com podcast, and I'm interviewing franchisors and, and entrepreneurs. And I talk to, every, you know, all different walks of life doing that. And basically, it's, it, 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 it too is educational in nature. And it's a great marketing tool for any business owner to have it because it's a great networking tool, really what it is. Yeah, 100%. Sorry if you can hear my dog barking. He That's thinks okay. that he is a, he thinks it's he's very intimidating part. and he's 20 part pounds. That's part of the show. So <laughs> when, when you started to pick that up again, what was the kind of, like, obviously you talk about PR, but you have to kind of search and find generally people to tell you to find your niche. I have not at all done that. I've talked to anyone and everyone. So I guess my niche is not having one. Um, but where did you kind of go through that process in your own head of like, okay, was it immediately? Because you said you had started it when you were still with the logging stuff. So it wasn't necessarily like now it makes now it makes sense that it's with the franchising and entrepreneurial yeah. side. But what was the thought process transition evolution of it for you? Well, when I started with the podcast, when I started with the absolute mindset name, uh, I just, I love talking about mindset because it impacts, like I said, it impacts everything, right? As I started going on my own, I said, you know, I probably need to transition this. I found myself talking about marketing all the time on the podcast, on the, on the original podcasts, you know, how they, how they grow their business. So the conversations were really a business oriented that I was having. And I said, okay, well, I probably should switch gears a little bit and put mm -hmm. that domain to use. And, and, and focus on entrepreneurs. So I started with entrepreneurs only, interviewing entrepreneurs. Then when I got into the franchising piece, I said, well, let's leverage it for that. And it all fit. It all yeah. came together. And I, this is what I tell people. I didn't, when I started the first one, I didn't know what I was going to end up here. You don't know when, if you're playing soccer, you don't know that you're going to make it to the World Cup. You know, you start, you think, you yeah, it's your vision, your dream. Yeah. But the journey there, you never know what the journey is going to take you. I didn't know, I don't know where this is going to go from here, but I I know if I keep putting the work in and the steps forward, opportunities are created by doing that. And, and, and you start to refine your message, you start to refine your market, you start to refine everything. And I, and I go back, to learning all that from Katrina, Rita, Gustav, I get to be peaceful mm -hmm. because I, I know it's going to get better. I know we're going to get better at our messaging and we're going to figure it out along the way.
Yeah, hundred percent. What's uh? I'll leave you with with this question. What's one thing that you've learned from um both I'll say franchising or the podcasting space? Just one, if there's one lesson that's stuck with you, um. And the reason I say from those two specifically is because obviously you have oodles of lessons from Katrina and Rita and, and Gustav and Nike and the BP oil spill. But what's one thing that you were able to, because that's a lot of experience and crises to go through, mm -hmm. but we can all be lifelong learners. So what's one thing that you've learned recently with your endeavors? Oh gosh, I I want to pull on two or different two or three different things, but if I had to pick just one at this very moment, you can say two or three. Yes, that's, that's fine. Okay, all right, I'll I'll say two. How about that? Okay, I'll I'll start with what I did over the summer. Over the summer, I said I'm going to get. I said I'm going to start working out, get myself in top shape. I'm a 57 years old. I'm starting this new journey. I want to parallel my journey, getting in shape, starting this fit. You know, started building this new business and everything else. I, and, 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 and for me, working out has always been um, an analogy or a metaphor for, for life and for work. And when my mind is sharp, I'm going to do better at life and work. So I encourage people, I mean, you're, you're speaking to an audience of soccer uh, fans. Obviously, you got to be in phenomenal shape to play soccer. But anybody sitting on the sidelines, they need to get in the game and get moving because if you don't move, you lose it. And the other thing is when you're in peak shape, you're going to do so much better in whatever whatever else is going on in your life. It just overlaps. It spills over for the better. Um, as long as it's not an obsession, it spills over for the better. You know, yeah. got to keep things in check. So that's the first thing. The second thing is a quote I learned many, many years ago, I shared it with a friend of mine earlier today, and I believe it holds true, true every single day. And the quote reads, yesterday is, is history, tomorrow is a mystery, and today is a gift. Mm. And that's why they call it the present. And every single day is so precious. My world was shocked. Every, everybody's lost somebody. I've lost grandparents. My parents are getting older. Uh, everybody, everybody's jolted by that. Uh, but I lost a dear friend. It was a mentor through in 2013. He was one of the, he was the men, gentleman I mentioned that went to DC with mm -hmm. my mentor. And I spoke to him every day, every working day for 13 years. And that shook me. And every moment is precious. And we all know that, but sometimes we just got to really pay attention to that. Yeah, that's a great way to wrap it up. Present pun. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. any last any last nickels? Or are you good to good to end on that? Man, I'm just grateful to be here with you. This has been fun, and man, I I, I I'm I'm excited for you because you got you you're dialed in early. A little bit, <laughs> trying my best. That's for yeah. sure. Yeah, and and this is talk about okay the benefit of podcasting. You get an education every time you do this. Yes. And I sure. do too. I do too. I learn so much from the people I speak to. Yeah, it's amazing. I say that I say that often um, about this, like, and the opportunity to speak to people that you never would have spoken to otherwise. Like, 
you and I never would have spoken if it was not for podcasting. And I can learn all about, all about your experiences in Katrina and then we can put it out to the world. And if it helps somebody else, then that's a win for me. If one if it helps one person, that's a win for me. So, yeah. And, um, we, and, and we're going to get you on the close the deal.com podcast. Yes. Same thing with here, except we're going to hear your story and we're going to your in your vision. And your in your and where you are, your mindset is at, at this at this stage of, of your life, which is great. Yeah. And I love that. That's exciting. Yeah, I'm excited. I've I think I've only done one. No, I've done two. Two, I've been only a guest twice. So it'll be a nice change of pace for me. Uh for those listening, uh, obviously we'll share we'll um share the link to, to that one when it comes out. But uh yeah, I'm excited and I will Probably I'll have to listen to a few of yours to uh, to prepare myself. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it'll be good. And I like I appreciate your time. Uh, your experience is obviously amazing. And for those listening, um, again, if you're interested in any of that stuff, please please feel free to message me and and we'll get you in touch. And um, and yeah, we'll see you guys next time. Peace. Thanks, Thanks sir.